Now, there's a first time for everything, and this morning I can say it's the first time I've ever preached in a jungle. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, I've actually never seen this elaborate of a setup, and the VBS folks tell me that this is actually more toned down than, uh, than years past. Um, and as we look around, we see a lot of fun decorations and props, and certainly it's absolutely wonderful, isn't it? I mean, we're teaching God to our little ones and the little ones of the community. And this week, the children will be hearing quite often about God's goodness, the idea that God is good in every and all circumstances. And I think we can all give a hearty men to that statement. Am I right? And indeed, God is good. And he is also completely sovereign, which means he has complete control and authority over everything that happens in life. The combination of these two together forms a powerful and foundational understanding of who God is. And this is crucial for us as believers. It is crucial that we have a right understanding of God, because I guarantee you this. What you believe about God will be the single most important factor in determining how you deal with the difficulties in your life. In biblical counseling, um, I've had fellow counselors from my past church who would often ask his counselees when they're struggling, what truth about God are you not believing at this moment? Or what lie about, about God are you being tempted to believe? Now, those are powerful questions. You see, it's one thing to say that we believe that God is good and sovereign, but we see a different reality in our hearts when we react in anger and frustration to unexpected trials. When we allow these difficulties to take our focus off of God, when we allow these difficulties to steal away the joy that we should have in the Lord. And this is especially true when it comes to the topic of evil. In fact, when it comes to non-believers, the existence of evil is one of the most common excuses given to reject the God of the Bible. How many of you have heard a non-believer say, well, if God is good, why does evil exist? Right? Uh, people ask that after almost every tragic shooting. If God is good, how come he allowed that to happen? Or they'll point back to other atrocities like the Holocaust or other acts of genocide. In fact, these challenges are not new. They're not unique to us. They're not unique simply to our own generation. And in fact, these questions are not even limited to non-believers, are they? As believers, we too often struggle with this dichotomy of God's goodness and sovereignty in light of all the evil that we have in the world. And for many of us, that struggle comes with good intentions. I mean, we want to uphold a God that is good. We want to believe what is best about our God. Our problem in doing so, however is that we can start to use what we think of as best in exchange for what the Bible says is true. And in an effort to rescue God from any association with evil, many theologians and pastors have resorted to saying that God has no control over the evil things that are done in this world, and that he didn't see many of these evil deeds coming. Now, I understand the desire to disassociate God from evil deeds, but if you say that he has no control over evil, then he is no longer sovereign. He is no longer in control. 
How can we be assured that all of his promises to us will come to fruition? On the other hand, if we say that he has complete sovereignty and control over evil, then how do we explain God's goodness? So if you have struggled with this, let me encourage you by saying that this is a good struggle. We desire a satisfactory answer to those who criticize our faith, don't we? We want to be able to prove to unbelievers that there is a perfectly good explanation for evil that ends up silencing all of their criticism. And yet we have to remember that our faith is foolishness to those who do not believe. And sometimes the test of our faith comes with our willingness to hold firm to what other people believe is foolishness. And make no mistake, the natural man believes that the things of God our foolishness. Now, when it comes to the origin of evil, I freely admit that there are many questions I cannot answer. I can tell you that the fall of Satan happened before the fall of man. I can also tell you that Eve was deceived, and when Adam was confronted with the dilemma of obeying his wife or obeying God, he made the wrong choice. Thus, we had the fall of man. And we know that as a result of the fall, sin has permeated our existence. It dominates those of us who do not know God, and it dominates Satan and his servants. So evil is in the world because of the sinful nature of mankind and because of the sinful nature of the fallen angels. But the ultimate question always traces back to the beginning. Why did God allow evil to exist in the first place? Why did God create angels who could rebel against him? Why did he create man in his own image that he could be tempted by sin by the serpent? If God is truly good and truly in control, why did he allow these things to happen? Now, many believe that this is the ultimate stumper of a question for Christians. Many believe this is the biggest unaccounted weakness in our faith, the one area in which there are no answers. But beloved, let me assure you, That from the very first books written in the Bible, Scripture is not silent about the existence of evil or even God's purpose with it. I read this morning from Romans chapter 9, and let me just reread a couple of verses from there. Romans 9, 22 to 23, Paul asked this, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, what those verses show us is that God's God's ultimate purpose for evil is nothing more than his own glory. And I'll tell you right now, if we truly desire the glory of God, and for those of us who know God, I trust that we do, then this is not merely the only reason offered up by Scripture, but it is the very best reason. And I'll tell you what else. The only way that evil can be for the glory of God is if God is absolutely sovereign over it. So when it comes to the matter of evil, I thank God constantly that nothing is outside of his sovereign control. Now, when it comes to the sovereignty and goodness of God, there are two verses in particular that often come to mind from Scripture. 
One comes from Romans 8:28, and we read, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then from the Old Testament, we have Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, which reads, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, it's that last verse that I want to focus on this morning. On its own, it's a powerful verse, but in context, it is magnificent and in the, scheme, in the scheme of the big picture from beginning to end, it is a verse that I clutch onto like a baby clutches onto a mother. It is where I go to find comfort with regards to all the evil that surrounds us. And it's not only a source of tremendous comfort, but it is one of the best reasons to worship the Lord and to sing his praises. To demonstrate God's sovereign goodness over evil, so that your trust in God will remain unshaken in the evil world. That is going to be my purpose this morning. You can see the title of the message is The Sovereign Goodness of God Over Evil. And once again, my goal will be to demonstrate God's sovereign goodness over evil, so that your trust in God will remain unshaken in an evil world. And as we consider this verse from Genesis 50:20, we will see God's sovereign goodness over evil demonstrated in three contexts this morning. And all of them are going to tie into this very familiar story of Joseph. Now, as a disclaimer, I have covered some of this in a recent Sunday school lesson, but not with this detail or scope. So don't snooze on me. And so we'll start with our first point, which is God's goodness to the sons of Jacob. God's goodness to the sons of Jacob. The story of Joseph begins in chapter 37. Now, we won't cover all the details, just the major plot points, and most of the story can be understood really within a span of the first five or six chapters of the account. But starting in Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 1, we read this. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. And now we're introduced to Joseph. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. And at the end of verse 2, we see, And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. And in verse 3, Now Israel, this is Jacob. Jacob had been renamed to Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons. And verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So Joseph goes on to share two of his dreams where his brothers bowed down to him. Talk about throwing gas on a fire, right? I mean, it's one thing that your brothers already hate you, and now you're sharing a dream where you're saying you're going to bow down to me. And their response, look down to, jump down to verse 19. They're out together when Joseph responds, when Joseph approaches to them, and look at what they say. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what becomes of his dreams. Now, do you see what's happening in this response from Joseph's brothers towards Joseph? They're not only provoked to action because of his dreams. They're specifically looking to kill him. 
Why? Why do they want to kill him? Well, of course they're jealous, but they also want to kill him because they want to ensure that those dreams don't come true. Now, some of the brothers mediate in order to ensure that Joseph is not killed. Go down to verse 21. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. And then go down to verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is, is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now following this, they go back to falsely report to their father, Jacob, that Joseph had been killed by a beast. Then you get to chapter 38, which is a story about Judah, which I'll come back to later. But go to chapter 39. Chapter 39, starting in verse 1, we read, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites. And then verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Now, this is amazing because how often have you found yourself in trials and thought that the Lord had deserted you or forgotten you? I love this passage because in spite of all that has happened, in spite of the fact that Joseph has been rejected by his brothers, sold to foreign traders and sent into a foreign land, it says here that the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And not only that, but look at verse 3. Verse 3, we read, Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Now that's a tremendous privilege. But we have the problem of Potiphar's wife. Go down to verse 9. Verse 7, sorry, first, verse 7, it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? So what we see here is exemplary behavior by Joseph, exemplary conduct. He's absolutely doing the right thing. He is fearing God and avoiding any kind of sexual misconduct. He is avoiding any temptation to immorality. But Potiphar's wife will not be deterred. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 reads, Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And then verse 14, She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. And then look at what the wife says to Potiphar in verse 19. Verse 19, 
Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying that this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail. Do you see what's happening here? Joseph refused to commit any kind of immorality, any kind of adultery. He even ran from the situation as fast as he could. And the result? He was not only falsely accused. I mean, think about this for a moment. He was falsely accused of the exact crime that he specifically did everything to avoid. And he was not only falsely accused of the very crime he did everything to avoid, he was falsely accused by the very person who was trying to make him commit the crime in the first place. I mean, how twisted can this deed get? How wrong and unjust can a situation be? He refused and did everything he could to not commit this sin, and he ends up getting accused for this sin by the very person who tried to force him in the first place. But again, I remind you that often during our dark days, even when we see evil that's happening all around us, even when we have trials come into our own life, even when difficult things happen, we may be tempted to believe that God has deserted us or forgotten us. But look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. I mean, you can see that Joseph is going through some difficult trials. Things are happening to Joseph that he would not want to happen, nor would any of us want to happen if we were in his position. But we see at each step of the way, the Lord is with him. What we're seeing here are that trials are not proof that God has deserted us, but rather that God is actually with us, guiding us. Then at the start of chapter 40, we're introduced to two other prisoners. One was the king's cupbearer and the other the king's chief baker. Then these two both have dreams that trouble them. Then in verse 6, look who is there to help. Chapter 40, verse 6, when Joseph came to them, the two prisoners in the morning, and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And he asked at the end of verse 7, why are your faces so sad today? Verse 8, then they said to him, we have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Now, we know that Joseph was a man of dreams and interpretation of dreams. But according to this verse, according to Joseph, who does interpretation of dreams come from? It comes from God. So Joseph goes to interpret the cupbearer's dreams. He tells him that he will be released and restored to his prior position of service to Pharaoh. Joseph then adds this request. It's here that we see Joseph's pain. Look at verse 14. He says this to the cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing that they should have put me in the dungeon. Now later we find that the cupbearer lives and is restored to the chief while the chief baker is hung. Just as Joseph had said would happen in verse 23. Verse 23, we read, Yet the chief cupbearer 
did not remember Joseph. So despite everything coming to fruition, verse 23 reveals to us that Joseph's one request, please remember me, was forgotten. The cupbearer was restored, but he forgot about Joseph. So after all of that, he remained confined in a prison. And do you know how long he has to wait until his fortunes change? Look at the first part of chapter 41, verse 1. Chapter 41, verse 1, we read, Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. So two more years in prison before Pharaoh has this dream. Now Pharaoh had two different dreams, and he's desperate for someone to interpret them. Look at verse 8. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then look who suddenly emerges amid this confusion in verse 9. Verse 9, we see, Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants and put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. In verse 12, now a Hebrew youth, he was in there with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. And we related, to, we related these dreams to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. And verse 13, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. So, of course, this is where Joseph's situation finally improves. And continuing in verse 14, verse 14, we read, Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And in verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Again, who does Joseph say will provide the interpretation? God. So Joseph understands that God is working throughout. He just has no idea where this will end. So Joseph listens to both of Pharaoh's strange dreams and then proceeds to interpret them. In verse 28, Joseph said that God is showing to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verses 29 to 31 describe seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine. In fact, both dreams lead to the same interpretation. So why have both dreams? Why have two different dreams if they're saying the exact same thing? Well, look at verse 32. Verse 32, Joseph says this, Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Did you see that? The matter is determined by God. Thus, who is responsible for abundance and famine? God. God is the one that interprets dreams. He's the one that brings abundance and famine. Then from verses 33 to 36, Joseph advises Pharaoh to appoint someone to collect a fifth of everyone's produce during the seven years of abundance in order to sustain them during the seven years of famine. And by the way, consider God's providence here. Consider God's good sovereignty, his care and provision here in ensuring that there would be seven years of abundance first. Otherwise, if famine came immediately, they would have nothing stored up. They wouldn't even be able to survive. But here is Pharaoh's response to Joseph's suggestion. Look at verse 37. Verse 37, now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. 
Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Now consider what just happened here. Even Pharaoh knows that God is the one working through him. Even Pharaoh recognized that God is the one that's blessing him. Now, do you remember how old Joseph was when he first had those visions that he shared with his brother? 17. 17. Look at verse 46. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. If he was 17 previously and he is now 30 as he stands before Pharaoh, that means 13 years have passed from the time that he first shared that vision with his brothers to the time that he finally stood before Pharaoh and his fortunes changed for good. But remember, Joseph's brothers are not going to come into Egypt until the famine is done, until the abundance is done and the famine begins. So that means there is yet another seven years of abundance that has to happen first before Joseph sees his brothers. So if it's 13 years from the time that he first shared his vision to the time that he stands before Pharaoh, and there's another seven years of abundance that has to happen before his brothers show up, how many years have gone by from start to end? It's 20. Well, 27 by the time you get to the end of famine, sorry, but by the end of abundance, you have 20 years. Now, at this point, Joseph's afflictions are finally over. But don't think for a moment that this was easy. Joseph would have two sons. And look at what he names them and why. Starting in verse 50, Genesis 41, verse 50. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Verse 51, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. Why? For he said that God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. Verse 52, he named the second one Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So we see here Joseph's trouble, his separation and affliction. And despite the fact that Joseph knew God had been with him, his first 13 years were characterized by trouble, affliction and separation from his family. My point is that these years were hard for him. These were hard years, despite him being a man who had been richly blessed by God. Now, God ultimately brings the famine. Look at what happens at, in verse 56. Verse 56, when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And then verse 57, the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And then in chapter 42, guess who takes notice that Egypt has food? Look at verse, chapter 42, verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And jo Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Now, the first time Joseph's brothers see Joseph. They don't even recognize him. But here it is. Remember Joseph's vision as a youth that they would bow down to him. Look at verse 6. 
Genesis 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people the land. And Joseph's brothers came. And what did they do? They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And this isn't the only time that they would bow down to him. They would bow down to him again in verse 28. Now at this point, the story shifts from Joseph towards the brothers and their shame over what they had done. Joseph would test them without revealing himself, and he even frames them for a theft that they didn't commit, and then forces them to go back to their father, Jacob, and bring Benjamin, their youngest brother. And after seeing how much they wanted to protect Benjamin, even being willing to substitute themselves for him when Benjamin was falsely accused, Joseph would break down and reveal himself, and ultimately tell them all to come and settle into Egypt. So he's basically telling all his brothers, look, come to Egypt, come to Egypt. The family not only comes to Egypt, but Pharaoh gives them permission to settle into Goshen, a highly fertile land for them and their livestock. Now, much later, after the father Jacob dies, we arrive at this final scene between Joseph and his brothers. Turn to uh, chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis. It's the final scene between Joseph and his brothers. And starting in verse 15, Genesis 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? You see, Joseph knows that he's not God. He knows that God has been with him all along. So they shouldn't be bowing down to him. But then we have this great statement from Joseph in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, hopefully that synopsis provides a good reminder of the major plot points in Joseph's life. And as we consider that great verse, let's rapidly walk back the major events that led to this point. I'm going to fire off a sequence of questions in a rapid sequence here and go ahead and blurt out the answers. What event led the Israelites to come to Egypt? famine, right? Who brought the famine? God. God brought the famine. What was special about Egypt that made that the place to go to during a famine? What did they have? They had grain. They had stored up food. Why did Egypt have that storage of food? They had stored it according to Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, right? Who do you think gave Pharaoh those dreams? God. Who gave Joseph the interpretation of those dreams? God. How did Pharaoh know to seek Joseph? Who was it that revealed to Pharaoh that he could interpret dreams? The cupbearer. 
And how did the cupbearer know? Because Joseph did what? Interpreted his dreams, right? Who gave Joseph the interpretation of the cupbearer's dreams? God. How did Joseph end up in prison? Who falsely accused him? The wife. How did Joseph end up in Potiphar's house? Joseph was brought to Potiphar's house as a what? Slave. And why was Joseph a slave? Who sold him? His brothers. And what event prompted the brothers to sell him into slavery? The dreams, right? And who gave Joseph the vision, the dreams? God. And what do we call that when God provides a vision of the future? What do we call that? Prophecy. And what are the people compelled to do when they receive a vision? They have to share it, right? It's the job of a prophet to share those visions. Now, just think for a moment about how God orchestrated all of these events. There were sinful responses of people all along the way, from the brothers to Potiphar's wife to the prisoner that led to the 13 years of bitter hardship. What blows my mind is this. God brought the prophecy to Joseph that his brothers would bow down to him, right? And how did he fulfill it? He fulfilled it through the brothers' sinful reaction to that prophecy. It wasn't just a sinful reaction. It was their best attempt to make sure that prophecy would not be fulfilled. It would not come true. I mean, think about this for a moment. Here's God essentially saying, I'm giving you a prophecy of what's about to take place. And you telling the prophecy to your brothers who will hate you for it. That's how this prophecy will be fulfilled. I give you the prophecy. You give it to those who want to reject it and will do everything to stop it. And that's exactly how I'm going to fulfill that prophecy. I mean, just how sovereign does God have to be to be able to do that? And I tell you, God's sovereignty has to be absolute. And I wouldn't want it any other way. Would you? No. God's sovereignty is absolute. It's absolute, and we should take comfort in that. And that's how Joseph can look back and tell his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is not saying that you meant it for evil and God turned it into good. You meant it for evil, and when God discovered it, he created other events to make sure good came about. No, he said what you meant for evil... God meant for good. He actually intended for their sinful responses to actually bring about his prophecy. And yet, I mean, looking at this, Joseph's brothers, he, they really did mean evil. That was not forced. So God is totally sovereign. He totally intended this to happen. And yet the brothers were never forced to sell Joseph into slavery. That was from their own sin, right? They did that out of their own sin and hatred. Potiphar's wife really did try to force Joseph to sin and then willingly lied about it when she did not get her way. She was not forced to do that. That came from her own sinful heart. And the fellow prisoner really did forget about Joseph, didn't even think to bring him up until his own king, his own pharaoh, had a dream that could not be interpreted. Now, do these sins fail to thwart God's plan? Absolutely not. God uses them to accomplish his plan. Now, by itself, this is a great story. We can lean back and just marvel over God's great sovereignty seen in this account of Joseph. But let's remember that these Bible stories, they don't exist in a vacuum. They have context, and their context connects to bigger pictures. And let's take a look at some of those bigger pictures. 
That brings me to the second context of God's goodness. The first one was God's goodness to the sons of Jacob. The second is God's goodness to the nation of Israel. God's goodness to the nation of Israel. Now, that story of Joseph is, is so engrossing that it's easy to forget about the larger covenant promise made to their forefather, Abraham. Part of that promise would be that God would make Abraham into a great nation. Let me read for you Genesis 12:2. Genesis 12:2 reads, from God to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And then three chapters later in chapter 15, God repeats that promise. And then Abraham believes God and it's accounted to him as righteousness. That's chapter 15, verse 6. And then he ends up asking in verse 8, how can he know for sure that the land will be his? So God ratifies the covenant, puts Abraham to sleep, and then says this in verse 13. Chapter 15, verse 13. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And of course, we know what that foreign land is, right? What is it? It's Egypt. This is God speaking to Abraham about his future descendants. They would be slaves in Egypt. And then look at what God says he'll do in verse 14. It says, but I will judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. It's easy to overlook the significance of that verse. But that's in reference to that great exodus from Egypt. That he would end up judging the Egyptians who had enslaved the Israelites. Now, why Egypt? Well, it was by many accounts, Egypt was by many accounts the most prosperous and most fertile country in that area of the world. And God would use that land to help the Israelites multiply. Fast forward now, go to Genesis 47. Genesis chapter 47. Take a look at 47 verse 27. By this time, Joseph's brothers had all gone to Egypt. And look at what happens in Genesis 47, 27. Now, Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Now, turn to the book of Exodus, the first chapter, because what we saw there in 4727 of Genesis is that they were multiplying. They were becoming numerous. That was part of the promise made to Abraham. But look at the book of Exodus in the first chapter. In verse 6, we see that Joseph, along with his entire generation, had died. But look at verse 7, Exodus 1, verse 7. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and exceedingly mighty they became. So the land was filled with them. That is the sovereign goodness of God upon the nation of Israel. But they would also end up enslaved. Why? Take a look at verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. Labor. They built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out. So they were in dread of the sons of Israel. 
I mean, look at that. This new king reacted to God's blessings upon the Israelites with fear and evil. And the more evil this new Pharaoh tried to do to them, the more they multiplied and grew. Then in verse 16, I mean, what we're seeing here is that no evil act of man can stop the will of God. But then in verse 16, this new king of Egypt told the midwives to slay all the newborn sons. And in verse 17, the midwives feared God instead. And then look at verse 20. Verse 20, so God was good to the midwives. And look at what happens. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. So what does Pharaoh do? Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile. Every daughter you, uh, you have are to, you are to keep alive. Then in chapter 2, I mean, after this command to cast all the firstborn sons into the Nile, keep the daughters alive, alive. And then you get to chapter 2. And you know what God does in his sovereignty? And seriously, you can't make this up. One baby Israelite goes floating down the Nile. Right into the hands of who? Pharaoh's daughter, right? Goes floating right into Pharaoh's daughter. And then gets raised up where? Right in Pharaoh's household. And who is that boy? I already heard someone blurt out the name. Moses. And right here in chapter 2, verse 10, he's given that name Moses. The one child that Pharaoh makes an exception for is the one who God would use to deliver the Israelites out of the land. Can I apply Genesis 50, 20 here and say that what Pharaoh meant for evil, God meant for? Good. Now, Moses would grow to be 40 when he first flees Egypt for killing one of the slave drivers. And another 40 years when he comes back for the Exodus. Look at Exodus chapter 5. And look at how Pharaoh first responds to the name of the Lord. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Now, in the history of bad responses, that was one of the worst responses Pharaoh could have come up with. We know Pharaoh would go on to harden his heart. But we also know that God at various times would also harden Pharaoh's heart. And you want to know why? I'll give you two reasons. One is for judgment upon Pharaoh. But more importantly, two, was for God's glory. God's glory. Look at Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that they may know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh hardens the heart. Of Pharaoh, I mean, sorry, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptians in order to demonstrate his signs that the Israelites will know just how great the Lord really is. Now, today we know God as a God of salvation. We know him as a God of deliverance, of redemption. But even before we knew God that way as Christians, the Jews knew him that way as well. 
Let me ask you this. What Jewish holiday is meant to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt? Passover, right? It's the Passover. And do you know exactly when God instituted the Passover? When did he institute the Passover? It would have been right before that 10th plague. He did it right before the 10th plague that would free them. And by the way, only, only God does this. I mean, think about this. We're approaching the 4th of July, Memorial Day, our day of independence as a country, right? But, you know, we had to obtain that independence first. We obtained that independence, and then we looked back and said, let's commemorate that as a holiday. You know what God does? God says, let's commemorate this as a holiday, and then I will show you why it's a holiday. Only God does that. And he didn't do this before any of the other plagues. I mean, he brought 10 plagues in total, but the first nine were in rapid sequence. And the 10th one, he says, okay, now, let's set up a festival that you will do for the rest of your generations. And then you will see why you're doing this. I mean, that's the way God operates. But what we see here is that God had always been firmly in control. He renewed through the first nine plagues that Pharaoh would not let the people go. But he knew that that 10th plague, he would have no choice but to do so. So we see that God would even harden Pharaoh's heart. And some see God's work and says, well, well, look, God made Pharaoh sin. Well, no. Look, any thought of letting the Israelites go was not from the goodness of Pharaoh's heart. Okay? It's not like he wanted to become a worshiper of God. But God made sure that Pharaoh knew who he was before it was all over. And then after the Israelites escaped, look at Exodus 14. Exodus chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. For Pharaoh will say to of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. You know, when the Apostle Paul looked back at this situation in Romans chapter 9, and we read some of that this morning, I'll just reread for you Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And then in Romans 9, 22 and 23, once again, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. You see, Joseph's migration to Egypt was much more than a story just about him and his brothers and how they ended up getting reconciled. His move to Egypt was how God would ensure his promise to Abraham. Because remember, Abraham said, I'm going to make you a fruitful nation. I'm going to multiply you. And how does he do that? He does that through the rich land in Egypt that they would end up settling in. And then he delivers them out. They, they, they end up in slavery specifically because those promises were being fulfilled. And it would be the Passover that was meant to remind the Israelites that the Lord had delivered them from the slavery of Egypt. So if you can say this with me, what the enemies of Israel meant for evil, God meant for good. But now there's one last context I want to connect this to. It is the ultimate context of the entire Bible, which leads us to the third point of this morning's sermon. 
the third point, the third context of God's goodness. And that is God's goodness to the rest of the world. God's goodness to the rest of the world. The first two were God's goodness to the sons of Jacob, then God's goodness to the nation of Israel, and now we have God's goodness to the rest of the world. So as we think about that inaugural Passover again, that first time that it was commemorated, what were those Israelites instructed to do? Take a look at Exodus chapter 12. Turn back to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 2. We read, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. And then verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. And then go down to verse 7, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And then go down to verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the word Passover. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, isn't it interesting that the Lord didn't simply just tell them to eat the lamb? I mean, you know, as part of this festival, go ahead and take a lamb and eat it. That's not what he said. He said before you eat it, he specifically wants them to, to make sure that they spread the blood on the doorposts. He wants them to remember that they were spared from the 10th plague. Because only if they did this, only if they obeyed in taking the blood and putting it on the doorpost, would the destroyer pass over their home and spare them. He wanted them to remember that they were spared from the 10th plague by what? By the blood of an unblemished lamb. I mean, if you're living at that time, that's, that's an odd picture. Why? why? Why are you doing this? But now we look back and we understand. I mean, that the Israelites would forever remember that their deliverance from slavery was initiated by the blood of an unblemished lamb. Is that starting to sound familiar? You think that, the, that, that that picture was lost on John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus Christ in John 1.29 when he said, Behold the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world? Now we often know Jesus as both a lamb and a lion. These passages make it clear where that lamb reference came from. But do you know where the lion reference came from? When did Jesus get prophesied to be a lion? Well, that actually comes from Genesis. That comes from Genesis. And when we consider the last 14 chapters of Genesis from chapters 37 to 50, from, for those last 14 chapters, who is the main human character in those last 14 chapters of Genesis? Who is the main human character? Joseph, right? Yeah, it's Joseph. He's in every chapter except for one. The only chapter in which he's not mentioned at all is chapter 38. So what is chapter 38 about? Well, curiously, that chapter is about Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. You see, Judah's son was married to Tamar and was slain by the Lord for his wickedness. So the next brother came to redeem him by marrying Tamar. But he would refuse to bear a child to him. And then Judah promised that his next son would be wed to her when he comes of age. But he never made good on that promise. So what does Tamar do? Tamar ends up disguising herself as a temple prostitute, and he, she slept with Judah. 
Judah nearly had her executed for adultery until he realized that he was the one that had committed adultery with her. Now, that's a heinous act. But we have to ask, why does God choose to include chapter 38, this strange story of Judah and Tamar, after already initiating the story about Joseph? Well, consider this. Before Jacob dies, he gathers his sons together and pronounces blessings upon them. And the greatest blessing was actually bestowed upon, of all people, Judah. Go to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, starting in verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. And then verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Do you know what a scepter is? A scepter is a rod. It's a staff that belongs to who? The king. It belongs to royalty. It belongs to a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And this is where the reference to lion comes from. The lion of Judah. He is the lamb and the lion. But what does that have to do with Judah's sin with Tamar? Well, out of that evil act between Tamar and Judah, when when Tamar and Judah slept with one another, out of that evil act came a child named Perez. You'll find that in chapter 38, verse 29. And then several generations down from this man named Perez would be a man named Boaz. And in the final verses of the book of Ruth, you find out in verses, in Ruth 4, verses 18 to 22, you may recognize the name, that's because that is the man who ended up marrying the Moabite Ruth in the book of Ruth. They would have a son named Obed. Obed would have a son named Jesse. And Jesse would have a son named David. And we know that the Messiah would specifically be a son of David. That would be the promise that God would give to David that we refer to as the Messianic Covenant, the the Davidic Covenant. But in other words, when we think about Genesis 38, we think about this strange story of Judah and Tamar. What we have in that story is actually the start of the Messianic line from Judah. Wow. The Messiah actually came from that kind of heinous act? So Joseph's migration to Egypt was not just for the Israelites, but it was also to preserve the kingship line that would lead to Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as we consider once again God's absolute sovereignty over evil, this is an amazing thread when you consider it, isn't it? I mean, all these events that are all connected. And beloved, when we consider the question of God and evil, we must, and I repeat, we absolutely must take any thought about this topic to the cross. Because that is ultimately where it ends. You see, even though we know evil is in the world, even though we're reminded of it daily, all the evil in the world pales in comparison comparison to what happened to Jesus on the cross. There is no greater evil than sending Jesus Christ to his death. He came as a perfect man in perfect righteousness, perfectly fulfilling the law. He fulfilled the prophecies. He proclaimed God's word. He called the people to repentance. But not only was he killed, he was sent outside the city to die like the foulest of criminals and to suffer the most agonizing of deaths. It was the greatest act of sin in the history of mankind. And second place is not even close. 
The people rejected him. The leaders slandered him. The Romans beat him and even mocked him. The greatest of kings should never have suffered this treatment from mankind. And if we know that all of us began this life as enemies of God, then we know that none of us would have tried to defend him on that cross had we been there. I know in my heart that I too would have rejected him. I probably would have joined in the mocking and the cursing of him. But what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Because it was that exact event on the cross. It was that exact sin, the greatest sin in the history of mankind that God would use to bring about the greatest gift to mankind, which is salvation. I mean, think about that for a moment. When you go to the cross, when you consider evil, there is nothing more evil than the crucifixion of the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. And it was that very sin that God would use to pour out salvation upon our souls. That is God's sovereign goodness over evil. Can you say with me what sinners meant for evil? God meant for good. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, this sacrifice on the cross can be the greatest gift you have ever received. But only if you believe. You see, while evil is in the world and it's all around us, each and every one of us also possess sinful hearts. And we sin against God and against others. And while all of us are guilty of a multitude of sins, whether it's hatred, anger, lust, envy, blaspheming, coveting, your greatest sin is that you have lived a life without seeking God, without seeking the true and living God, the one who has actually created you. And the penalty for those sins is death. Even if this is the first time you've been at a church, even if this is the first time that you have ever heard the gospel, all of us stand guilty before God. And let me assure you that the price that Jesus paid on the cross can cover any sin, any evil, no matter how big, no matter how often. And how is that so? Because all of our sins combined cannot outweigh the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross as the perfect son of God. No matter who you are, you can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. This is the greatest expression of love anyone can offer. John 3.16, a very familiar verse, reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But to, to, to believe in Jesus Christ is not merely to believe in him intellectually. This is not merely words that you can utter and then just go about your life the way it was before. This needs to be a sincere and genuine desire to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. It should be a desire to receive his righteousness. It is to want to follow him and to learn from him and to want to glorify him with your life. You see, the gift of Jesus Christ is free. You do nothing to earn your salvation. Jesus has done all the work on the cross. But your faith can only be true if it leads to a desire to follow him. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect. We all continue to fail in various ways, but it does mean a new direction. A direction that will end with the promise of eternal life. 
Don't leave today without speaking to me or one of the deacons. Um, I'll be here following the service, and we'll have an assigned deacon standing at each one of the exit doors. In fact, um, um, Gail Cheatwood and, uh, and Dick Ashers, can you please stand up for a moment? So these two deacons will be at each of the two exit doors. I'll be here up in the front. You can sit. I'll be here in the front. Please do not leave without speaking to one of us first. We will pray for you. We will help give you guidance if you're feeling that desire in your heart to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me conclude with this encouragement for the rest of us. Evil should not cause us to doubt God's goodness. Evil should not put us on the defensive end with regards to God, but rather evil should cause us to run to God. Be amazed that in spite of living in a sin-cursed world, God's purposes can never be thwarted. Be amazed that no matter how hard people try to deny God, to rip him out of our school systems, out of our society, he will prevail. And be amazed and, in, and instead of feeling defensive about God's goodness, run to him and take comfort in him. And seek to praise him unceasingly, that his sovereignty didn't stop short of evil, but rather God's sovereignty completely consumes evil. And because of Christ, we have a guaranteed hope for the future, where evil will be no more, where we can worship God without the presence of either sin or evil for the rest of eternity in heaven, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. Is that worth looking forward to? Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to give you thanks for this time to be able to go through this story of Joseph and some other verses. Uh, Father, it's amazing what your word testifies to with regards to your sovereignty over evil. Father, I pray for all of us that we would not be discouraged by the evil that we see around us, but that we would be strengthened to remember that the Bible is not silent. Your word is not silent. And you have demonstrated over and over, even from the very beginning of the scriptural books that were written, going all the way back to the beginning, you have shown that you will use evil to bring about your ultimate good purposes. Father, I pray that for all of us that we would be edified by this, that we would meditate upon these truths. We would seek to share them with those who do not know you. We would seek to share how God has promised that you have promised through your son that evil will be conquered ultimately for all who proclaim your son as Lord and Savior. Father, we give you thanks for these truths. We give you thanks for this time. We give you thanks for the worship. And we lift these things up in the name of your son and our Savior and all of God's people said.